Thanks for tuning in to the Lake Forest Church Podcast. Lake Forest is a community for people who have given up on church, but not on God. If you'd like to learn more about our churches in Huntersville, Davidson, and Denver, North Carolina, you can check us out online at lakeforest.org. Over the last 60 years, one of the fastest growing areas of research in the field of psychology is something known as happiness studies or happiness research. It's part of the positive psychology movement. We have, there has been more research, more studies done on happiness in the last 60 years than there have been in the entire rest of the history of the Western world. Such is our kind of obsession, our, our passion about happiness. Uh, funny thing about all these uh, research studies, interestingly enough, none of these studies have actually figured out how to make us any happier, have they? Uh, all that we know is that we care about happiness. In fact, you might not know this, but they have recently developed something that's known as the uh, um, uh, General Happiness Index, like a, just like the GDP is for the economy. There's the General Happiness Index that measures the general happiness of each country. Uh, any guesses as to which direction up or down the happiness of the USA is going right now? It's going down. Not funny. You know, uh, I was thinking about this because uh, I don't know about for you, but for me, I-, I think happiness is a great thing in my life. It really is. But happiness, in spite of all of my efforts to hold on to it, to, to somehow capture it, to cling to it, happiness, just, it just kind of comes and it just goes. Happiness, it seems, is forever anchored in my circumstances, or quite literally, happiness is anchored in what happens. Hence, we call it happiness, right? But there's this part of me that longs for something more, something more than happy. Is there a deep and lasting kind of well-being that we can experience in our lives? Is there something more than happiness? And today, I want to make the case that I think there is. Interestingly enough, in the year 2019, uh, the number one used emoji, any guesses as to what the most common used emoji was? This is around the globe, cross cultures. Any guesses? Close. It's actually the tears of joy emoji. Tears of joy. Isn't that interesting? It actually supplanted the red heart. Red heart was 18, y'all. That's gone. Tears of joy is 19. And I was thinking about this because... What is it about joy and tears that go together, right? And I think somewhere embedded in this emoji is this idea that we long for joy, and not just any joy, but we long for joy such that it would reach the point of overflowing in our lives. Tears of joy, right? Truth is, I think that that's what actually unites all of us in this room. Whether you're a Christian or you're just a spiritual person or explorer, skeptic, all of us, I believe, each and every one of us was created for joy. We were. And so we have this God-given longing uh, for joy in our lives. Well, we are in the midst of a series right now, a very important series, uh, kind of an identity series for us, defining who we are as a church. Uh, we're calling it Rooted. And we've been talking about the different things that we are rooted in, kind of our DNA as a church. Week one, we talk about how we are rooted in Jesus. Jesus is, is the center of everything we do. We worship Jesus, we pray to Jesus, we study Jesus, we imitate Jesus. Jesus is the center of everything for us. But Jesus calls us into our second kind of roots. We are to be rooted in community. Uh, The Bible uses this word koinonia, and we talked about this the second week in the series. It's a special kind of togetherness that God calls us to. 
The third root is that we are rooted in mission. God doesn't just call us to come together. He sends us out to be salt and light in the world, to be agents of good in our neighborhoods and communities. And then fourthly, last week, we talked about how we are rooted in legacy. You have a legacy. I have a legacy. We, together as a church, have a legacy. The question is, what kind of legacy are we going to leave? Interestingly enough, you heard it in Debbie's video. We are a multi-generational church. There is no one age demographic that dominates our community. And because of that, we believe God has called us a special assignment for us to pass on faith to the next generation. That's part of our legacy. Well, today we come to our fifth rooted, and that's that we are rooted in joy. Now, I don't know if you're like me. You didn't grow up in the church. I did not grow up in in a Christian family or or in the church, so church was new to me when I came to faith in my late teenage years. Maybe you grew up in a church. Uh, You know, there are different kinds of versions out there. I was talking to a guy yesterday, and he said that the church he grew up in, the goal, as far as he understood, was that he was supposed to feel really bad about himself and then go home. That was the goal of church every Sunday. And if he didn't feel like, if he didn't feel bad enough about himself, he felt like he didn't get church that week, right? Now that's kind of one flavor. Uh, there are some other churches where it felt like there was a long list of boxes you had to check, just a bunch of stuff you had to do. And if somehow you could do all those things, then you would be in good standing with God, and then you could kind of do the Christian thing. What I want to submit to you today is that neither of these are really what Jesus seems to talk about when he talks about his people, the church. The thing that Jesus wanted to mark his church more than anything else was this quality of joy. On the night before Jesus uh, was going to die, he was trying to explain to his followers, his disciples, what was going to happen, that they were going to experience some hardship. But he said, don't worry, don't get discouraged, don't give up. Eventually, there will come a greater joy. It's a very tender scene. It's actually a very personal scene. But the way John, Jesus' friend who records this for us, the way John writes about this, it's almost a little bit comical. Listen to how John describes it in chapter 16. Jesus said, in a little while you will see me no more. And then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you will see me. And because I am going to the Father, they kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more? And in a little while you will see me. Do you feel the comical nature of this? John's just having a little bit of fun with us. And the disciples at this point are like, "Uh, yes, Jesus, that's what we're wondering. Explain it to us, please. So he continues, very truly, I tell you, maybe you've heard this, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. It's kind of like this. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So it is with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now, moms, let me just ask you real quick. Is that how it actually works? I mean, I, I think the men in the room, we kind of know. I mean, we've, we've had man colds before. We know labor's hard, right? We... 
But is this how it works? Do you just forget the pain afterwards? I remember when we were pregnant with our first baby, uh, Merab and I, we went to the classes. Do they still do the classes today? Okay, we went to the classes, and we learned. I learned that I had a very important role to play. Uh, my role was to be Mary Robin's coach. I was to stand next to her and hold her hand and, and coach her how to breathe just in case she forgot how to breathe. That was my job, right? And so there I was in the labor room with her. And y'all, labor is no joke, man. There is a lot of struggle and a lot of pain, right? And I mean, the nurses are everywhere and the doctors are everywhere and, and the labor, it just keeps going and going and going. I mean, I got so tired, I had to sit down. What's Jesus' point here? That women can no longer remember the pain? No. That they develop amnesia and just forget it all? No. Jesus is telling us something about joy. The point is that joy, the joy of giving life, is going to outweigh the pain of giving birth. That what starts out as labor, as work, is going to end in joy. And this is what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He says, in a little while, you will not see me, but then you will see me again. You will rejoice, and no one, no one will take away your joy. And much to their surprise, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is crucified, and the pain is overwhelming. They can't see him, but it's not yet the end. Then he is risen, and they are filled with an indescribable joy to the point of overflowing. Now, y'all, I just have to tell you, if you ever sit down to read in the New Testament the story of the first century church, it is uncanny how much this joy marked their community. Many of those who decided to become Christians were shunned by their friends or families. They lost businesses. Uh, some of them were beaten for their faith. And how, they, uh, and how did they respond? They, they responded by rejoicing. That they were rejoiced, that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. Some of them were clapped in chains. They'd be thrown into dungeons and prison. And they would have hymn fests. They would sing all night these songs of worship to God late into the night because there was no other way to express the joy that was in their hearts at having been found worthy of suffering for his name. Many of them had nothing. They lived in poverty, but even their poverty could not take away their joy. Paul says of them in his letter to the Corinthians, in the midst of a very severe trial and extreme poverty, their overflowing joy welled up in rich generosity. My friends, if there is one word that marked the character of the early church, it is this word, joy. They were rooted in joy. Which begs the question, can we get in on that kind of joy in our lives? Is that kind of joy just something for the Bible times, or is that something we can experience today? And if it is, if it is, how do we get in on that? Where does that kind of joy come from? Well, what I want to do today with the little bit of time we have together, I want to look at three places that I think that joy comes from, for, or three places that that joy can be found in our lives. First one is this. Joy comes from, joy comes from, lasting joy comes from understanding the deep love of God towards us. Lasting joy comes from understanding the deep love of God. 
Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes it in his letter to the Ephesians. He writes this. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses understanding, that you, excuse me, that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Joy overflowing fullness. I was recently at a dinner party and uh, the host asked this great question. I just love the question. He was just stirring the conversation. He said, if you could go back and give one piece of advice to your 13-year-old self, what piece of advice would you give? The first thing that came to my mind was this, buy lots and lots of Apple stock. That's, that was the first thing that came to my mind. But, uh, but right after that, a second thought came to my mind, right? And that was this. I would tell my 13-year-old self, to find my worth and identity in God's love. To root myself in his love. Because I don't know about y'all, but I spent so much of my life worrying, searching, grasping for something else to tell me that I mattered. See, the truth is that our deepest need as human beings is to know that we are accepted. To know that we matter to someone. And so from a young age, we begin seeking the approval, the affirmation, the acceptance of our peers. If I can just make the team, oh, if somehow I could just be a part of that friend group, if I could just sit on that seat on the bus with so-and-so, maybe just maybe then I would matter. Maybe just maybe then I would be accepted. Middle schoolers, you think you're the only ones who deal with this. Your parents deal with this too. They have a little bit of a different version. Theirs goes like this. If I could just get that promotion or that title, or if I could just be recognized by the business leaders in my field of industry, then maybe, just maybe, I would be accepted. I would matter. You see, we all chase after this need from colleagues, the recognition from our industry, and some kind of elusive thing that we think will fill it, and nothing ever does. We know this. We know this. Now, you, you think pastors would be immune to this, right? We should know better, uh, but we're not, just, just FYI. In fact, I was at a church planter's conference a couple weeks ago, and if you can imagine a room full of like a thousand me's, I know it, it's almost like hell, just I know that's what I but just imagine, just imagine right? And we're all there. It's a bunch of people. We've all planted churches. We're all sacrificing. We're all doing it. And you know what the most common question is in the first two or three minutes of conversation? Most common question. Any guesses? How big is your church? One of my friends calls it the how big is your steeple question, which I think is kind of funny. But I, I've taken to doing this. You know, what I actually do now is I just lie and I say, well, we quit counting after 5,000. It was just too tough, you know. <laughs> The truth is, truth is, no amount of success, no amount of wealth, no amount of recognition will ever fill this fundamental need. It is only when we realize how deep and wide and high and long is the love of Christ for us, when we saturate ourselves in that love, that we finally can experience the freedom and joy that we were made for. Jesus once told a story about a guy who uh, found some treasure buried in the field. Maybe you've heard this story before. He was out in the field. I don't know how he found it, but he found it. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cover this back up with dirt. 
I'm going to go and I'm going to sell everything I have so that I can go and buy that field so I can have that treasure. Now, I don't know if you've heard that story, but, but in my early years as a Christian, I used to hear that. I thought, well, I guess that maybe this story is about me kind of sacrificing everything so that I can have Jesus. And I think there's probably some, some merit to that reading. But in recent years, as I've read that story, it dawned on me that I'm not the person who goes and purchases the field. God is the person who does that. God is the one who sacrificed everything so that he could purchase the field that has the treasure that is you and that is me. We are the treasure that God sacrificed everything for. Let me say that again. You are the treasure that God sacrificed everything for. You are God's treasure. And my friend, if you can live out of a confident place that he treasures you, holy cow, talk about joy. Joy comes from understanding the deep love that God has towards us. Secondly, this, joy comes from being a part of something bigger than ourselves. One of the most remarkable things to me about the church in the first century was the incredible sacrifices they made for their faith in Jesus and for the sake of his mission. Many of them sold homes, sold fields, they left families, they left businesses. Many of them were put in prison for their faith. And yet in the midst of all of this, there was a kind of joy that could not be taken from them. In fact, one time the apostle Paul was in prison. Uh, He wrote this letter to a little church plant that he had started in a nearby town called Philippi. Listen to how he opens this letter to this young church plant. He says this, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart. And and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Can you imagine? We don't know for sure, but scholars think Paul had been in prison for as many as three or four years by the time he writes this letter. What would compel him to write a letter like this? In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with what? Joy. Paul, are you sure? Are you sure, Paul? That's a, uh, we think you should be feeling sad, Paul, right? We think you should be weep. In fact, Paul, we think you should find a better attorney, right? That's really what we think you should do. We don't like you to feel this way. And he says, no, no, no. It's right for me to feel this way. Why? Because I have you in my heart. I have you in mind. Whatever I'm sacrificing, whatever discomfort, whatever loss, whatever hardship I'm facing, I'm doing it so that you might experience the grace of God. And that, that sacrifice brings me joy. See, sacrifice for something worthy, for a worthy cause, will always lead to joy. You want to know real joy? Real joy? Find something in your life worth sacrificing for, something worth suffering for, a dream or a goal big enough to merit your whole life and give yourself wholly to that. And my friend, you will experience a joy unlike anything you've ever seen before. You see, we've been talking every week in this Rooted series about the mission that God has called us to as a church. And it is a big one. It's an important one. He's called us to love people as they discover and live out their role in God's story. And last week, we talked about how each one of us, we as a church, have a legacy. 
A lot of churches are made up of mostly young people or mostly old people or mostly middle-aged people, but God has seen fit to make us, to shape us, to mold us as a multi-generational church. And because of that, we believe we have the responsibility to pass on this faith to the next generation. And when I think about the babies that we baptize, we baptize two in the first service. We baptize in the second service. These babies that we baptize, these when I think about this generation growing up in this church, that this is the place where they're going to come to know the love of Jesus. You know, that is a mission worth sacrificing for. I think about the fifth graders. Next week, Sunday night, next week, 15 fifth graders will gather in that room for the foundations class where they will have the opportunity to learn the foundations of faith, to respond to this God of grace and to be baptized or confirmed and own their faith for themselves. Y'all talk about a legacy worth living for. I was talking to one of our fifth graders last week, and he shared with me how excited he was about the foundations class. And I thought, I said, I said well, hey, yeah, yeah, tell me about it. What are you looking forward to? I, I thought he was going to talk about pizza or the games that they play and all, or how excited he is to go to Remix. And he, y'all, he didn't skip a beat. He looked me right in the eyes. He said, I can't wait to get baptized. Wow. Legacy. Sacrifice. Something bigger than ourselves. Joy comes from knowing that you are loved. Joy comes from sacrifice. And finally, joy comes from a life of generosity. Let me ask you a quick question. Have you ever met a grumpy, depressed, frustrated, generous person? You're thinking with the first three words, you're saying, well, I'm sitting next to them right now. No, 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 no. (laughs) See, the truth is a generous person is immune to grumpy. Why? Because generosity always leads to joy. It does. You know, one of those happiness studies, you go look this up on Google, happiness study from uh, out of Harvard found that we derive two to three times more joy from buying something for someone else than we do from buying something for ourselves. Generosity always leads to joy. One of my favorite stories of generosity comes from Luke's gospel. One day, Jesus was sitting with his disciples in the back of the temple, kind of the church of the day, and he's watching. He's kind of sitting back there on the bleachers with his, his bros, and he's watching as the people come in to give their offering. And it's at this moment that Jesus, uh, excuse me, Jesus notices one of the most remarkable acts of generosity the world had ever seen. Luke describes it this way. He says, Jesus looked up, and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury, the offering." He also saw a poor widow put in two very small coins. And then he said this, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. Now, there are a couple of things I love about this story, and both of them have to do with those last five words. More than all the others. What does Jesus mean? Well, first of all, this woman, by the way, had no idea that Jesus was watching. Did you catch that? She doesn't know they're back there on the bleachers. She is simply giving to God out of the generosity that he has shown her. She's doing it in secret for God's eyes alone. And two copper coins may not sound like much to us. We we would really probably call them pennies. Might be even a better translation in our day. But this was a huge sacrifice for this woman. 
It could have been if she was of the working poor class. It could have been as much as two, three, maybe four months worth of money that she would have had at her disposal. Presumably the rich are giving more in terms of actual dollars, but they are giving less in terms of a percent or a sacrifice. The rich would hardly notice the absence of their gift, but this woman sacrificed much. But you know what I love about her story even more? Is how through this simple and humble act, this woman writes herself into the story of God. Because generosity always connects us to God's story and his mission. Over the last 2,000 years, this story of this woman's generosity has been told over and over and over again. It has inspired millions and millions, perhaps of billions of acts of generosity. And y'all, I don't know how this whole thing works in the spiritual economy, but talk about a spiritual ROI, right? A spiritual return on investment, y'all. This is incredible. Can you imagine? We're going to get to meet this woman someday. I mean, we're going to get to go up to her and we're going to say, did you have any idea the, the inspiration that you would be to the acts of generosity. We're going to be able to ask her, and can you imagine the joy that she will have knowing the billions that she inspired? You see, this is what Rooted is all about. We have the opportunity to give. We have the opportunity to make an investment in God's mission through our church. And when we invest in Rooted, we are not simply giving to a building we are investing in the work of changed lives, in stories of hope, in stories of healing, in stories of salvation, like we have been hearing through these God stories every week. We are investing in the stories of the, the babies that we baptized today, in the stories of the babies yet to be born, in the story of the spiritual babies that God will use us as a church to bring new life to them so that they might know the hope and peace and joy that we have in Christ Jesus alone. Talk about a spiritual return on investment. That is our assignment. And now the truth is that being rooted in joy means recognizing first and foremost that everything we have is from the Lord. Everything. God has given us everything we have for our enjoyment and for making a difference in the world around us. And we've been saying this every week in this series. We are blessed so that we can be a blessing. And so we can enjoy and celebrate what God has given us. But so we live open-handedly, ready to offer God whatever it is that he asks of us. That's what real faith looks like. It's confidence in God's goodness. That even when he calls us to sacrifice, when he calls us to give, he will provide for our every need. That is his promise. And if you have never experienced the joy of giving, I want to gently challenge you. Could this be your first opportunity? Now, if you're a guest here, and I know we've had a bunch because of baptisms, or maybe it's your first time, I want you to know I'm not speaking to you. I really am not. Um, but if this is your church, this is your church. Whether you've been here one month or one year, I want you to lean in with me for a moment, just for the next four minutes. In the back table, we have what are called commitment cards. In fact, many of you will have received a commitment card in the mail this week. The commitment cards are simply meant to be a tool for you to discern what God is asking of you in response to this rooted vision. It represents just one part of our lives, the financial part. 
in which each of us are going to respond to God like that widow responded to him. Now, there are two things that she did that I'm suggesting should characterize what each of us writes on that card this week as we pray and discern two words. And the first word is this. It is the word faith. This widow trusted God with her future. She didn't know how it was going to work out. But she said, God, this is my future. I'm trusting you with it. Because faith, my friends, always feels risky. And I know for many of you, giving financially to Rooted, this will feel risky. It will, and that's okay. That's part of faith. But the second word that should characterize this is the word sacrifice. This widow chose to live a sacrificial life to be a blessing to others and to the world with the little bit that she had. And that's what our pledges are about as well. When we pledge, we are making a financial sacrifice. And what we do on that, on that card ought to reflect that our heart is declaring to God, this costs me, this costs me. I am sacrificing something I love, but this is my way of saying in my financial life, I want my life to count for something greater than myself. Now, some of you have asked me, Aaron, uh, man, the cost on this thing is huge. And it is. How are we going to get there? Well, we actually have a roadmap. And it's found in your vision guide. If you do not have a vision guide, we have plenty of extras in the lobby. I'd invite you to take one. I want to show you the roadmap on the screen. This is something we call the giving table. This was designed specifically for our church. Based on our size, on our number of households and the total needed. And what it shows is the number of families and the size of gifts needed at each level. For example, we need at least one family who will give about $300,000. And we need two families that will give at least $150,000. Now, don't worry. If you want to give more than $300,000, that's okay. We will let you, okay? You don't need to feel limited by this. This is simply meant to be a guide. It is a three-year pledge, and every gift is critical. But without the gifts at the top, we simply will not be able to get there. Now, some of you see this top tier, and you think, man, Aaron, that is impossible. But this is meant to illustrate the two teachings of Jesus about giving. First is simply this, that it is proportional, like the widow's two pennies. It is proportional first, and it is sacrificial. To whom much is given, much is required. And so the goal is for each family who would call this their church, for each family this week to find the intersection of proportional and sacrificial, to find where those two intersect on that chart and to take a step of faith based on God's blessings in your life. Find the number you believe God is calling you to. And trust him in faith. Now, if you're like me, uh, your eye naturally gravitates towards a number that feels comfortable. It just does. That's Mary Robin and I have been doing this, this this week. We're praying. We got a second one going into college. I'm like, God, is there a fourth table down here that I can commit to? Right? I mean, it's just scary for us. And so we've been drawn towards the comfort, comfortable numbers. But we've been asking, God, would you stretch us? Would you grow our faith? Would you help us have confidence that you will provide for us. And so we've been asking God to lead us towards that. Some of you have talked to me about your gift this week, and we, we have gifts all over this chart. Uh, so we have a handful of folks whom God has gifted with extraordinary capacity, 
who have stepped up to some of the gifts on that top level, and others with less capacity who are making sacrificial gifts in the middle. And I'm so excited to share with y'all. I mean, this is just, you got to know, uh, as a pastor, I did not go into this thing to raise money. I really didn't. Uh, and so I was praying just, uh, just this week. I said, God, would you give me some encouragement? Because I, I want to trust you for our church. And I was so excited. Uh, last Sunday, I heard from our accountant, a handful of families had turned in cards already. And uh, just this handful of families, we already have well over half a million dollars pledged. Just a handful of families. But we are not there yet. And we cannot get there without your help. Which is why our goal, here is our number one goal. Our number one goal is that we would have 100% participation. That really is our goal. And that's why we mailed those cards out to you this week. If you did not receive a card or you're not sure if you received a card, please, 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 please take one. We have plenty of extras for you. Now, one last thing, because we want everyone to have the chance to participate. One last thing, one last thing. This commitment card is not a contract. It's not. We are not a business. The church is not a debt collector. This card is simply a commitment of faith. And we know, we know life changes, it does. And it can change in both directions. So don't worry, whatever you commit, you can always call the office and increase it later if you want to. That is fine. We know, we know that life changes. See, the truth is only God can see around corners. Only God knows what your future holds. And if your situation changes, you can always call and adjust it. I just don't want you to miss out on this step of faith. I don't want you to miss out on this incredible opportunity to be a part of the foundation of what God is calling us to as a church. Now, I need to say two last things. Uh, I had someone come up to me and said, Aaron, I was planning to give a stock gift, uh, and then the corona thing hit, and now like, whew, I can, you know, you don't want my stock, right? I said, don't worry, don't worry. Uh, what's important is the pledge. You can decide when you want to give the gift in whatever way is best for your financial situation. In fact, we have one ministry partner who is in the process of selling a business. The, the contract is done, but the full transfer of the business will take 30 months. And they've decided they're, they're going to give 10% this year, 10% next year, and then the remaining 80 in year three. The goal or the purpose is not when the money comes, but what is the pledge that God is asking you to make? A three-year pledge above and beyond. So next week, next week, I hope you will come with hearts ready to worship and celebrate because what God wants to do in us through this campaign is root us in a kind of joy that we have never known. A joy that comes from knowing his love, from being a part of something bigger than ourselves and from experiencing the joy that comes from generosity. What role might he have for you to play in that rooted vision? Can we stand as I pray for us?